Hey, this is Maddie Blair, co-host of the Coalition Rendition. On this episode, we talk about homelessness in Chattanooga with Joe Brackett from Homeless Health Care Center and Casey West from the Chat Foundation. Stay tuned for some information at the end about prevention and safe driving practices this holiday season. This one uh, got now uh, it's titled something about the water and this is from back in October the middle of October a week during where we saw 191 people I'll go ahead and, and read this and try to maybe give some more uh, perspective after that uh, so something about the water um, you know they say you can lead a horse to water but you can't make them drink this phrase was said to a rock member this week by one of their coworkers from their respective agency. The coworker was utilizing this phrase as an attempt to explain how some people experiencing homelessness seem to be receptive to help, while others seem to not want any help. At the time of this conversation, the rock member was in a rush. They didn't have the time and likely the energy to stop and explain to their coworker that the issue they had with their logic is that things are not always as they seem. The issues are not always so black and white. So first, let's interpret the roles. People experiencing homelessness are not horses. They are people. When we begin to equate people as anything else, it becomes tempting to believe we can, we get to be the leaders, we get to be the experts, or we get to be the professionals on someone else's situation. These homeless don't know what they are doing with their lives. If only they knew what we know and lived how we live, drink water from where we have brought them to drink water, they would be better off and no longer in the situations they find themselves in. We must educate, teach, tell, lead, and save. These are the things that we begin to be tempted to say when we think that we are the experts and the leaders. And this is a dangerous way of seeing yourself and your role in providing homeless services. Quickly, it can become more about intimidating and manipulating rather than serving. Also, if we were talking strictly about horses, horses know how to find water and drink water without any help. So, say I were to lead an actual horse to water. After arriving at the water, I observed that it was not and would not drink from the water I had led them to. I would hope at this point I would utilize some critical thinking and come up with some follow-up questions for myself that I could investigate. Is there something about the water? Is this horse even thirsty? Maybe there's something else it would rather have at this time. Have I really taken enough time to thoroughly evaluate what this horse is needing most importantly right now? Does this horse have problems with the water or does this horse have problems with me, the person that brought it here? Does this horse feel safe here or what have their past experiences at this source of water or other similar sources been like? When you Google what this phrase means, it says that this phrase is used to emphasize that you can make it easy for someone to do something, but you cannot force them to do it. Well, firstly, when it comes to homelessness, absolutely nothing is ever easy, ever. And self-determination has been discussed at length in other posts on this page. Again, another plug that you should check it out if you haven't already. <laughs> we at The Rock realize that self-determination is an ever-present force in someone's life. We also have to continue to realize that our clients are the people who are the experts leaders and professionals on their own lives it can be our role for our it can be 
our role for our clients to educate, teach, and tell us what is most helpful and what is most needed. And we need to be accepting that there may be something about the water or the service opportunities we are offering that is not always going to do, appear crystal clear to the client. And it could remain forever murky to us as to why someone would make the decision that they make. It's not our role to lead, but instead to be welcomed enough to walk beside. It's not our role to save. It's our role to help. Oh, close for a second. It's not our role to lead, but instead to be welcomed enough to walk beside. It's not our role to save. It's our role to help people either become or remain secure in the fact that who they are is enough. It is also our role to constantly and thoroughly investigate where, when, and what our role is in the life of someone experiencing homelessness. Because without this investigation, the reins of our roles can be so easily twisted. I love that. That's really, really good. That was a good article. Thank you. Um, can you elaborate on what you mean by that writing? Sure. Yeah, it's really just a a statement on self-determination. It's a statement on how we don't get to show up in someone's life and automatically assume or tell them what they need to do. Um, that's not our job and people, even if you are under the belief that, that is your job, you're not going to have very much success. Uh, and so success looks very different for us. Um, success is uh, a much different looking thing than that to us. And I'd be happy to elaborate on what success does look like to us. <laughs> yeah. And if you'll just answer this real quick, we'll get to what you and Maddie wanted to talk about the uh, housing issue. Sure. Um, a lot of people, I think they believe that homelessness is caused by addiction. And I'm not saying that some of it isn't, but not all of it is. Right. Correct. Yeah. Uh, addiction is uh, a big topic that gets thrown in with this topic of homelessness and uh, it definitely has its place to be talked about and I know that the work that you guys do over at the county coalition are doing amazing things in that area of uh, we can't tell you how many times we've reached out to uh, the folks at the new start program um, with Maurice and uh, Jan and, and all of them and Emily uh, and they answer the phone every time uh, because they understand the crucial moment it is whenever somebody is considering um, making a change and being serious about that change, uh, that that moment is so critical to intervene and provide a solution right away. And they do that and they have helped us in so many ways save lives with that. Um, but yeah, uh, people ask all the time uh, whenever I'm talking about what, I, what it is that I do, uh, how many people, uh, or what are, what are the reasons why people are experiencing homelessness? And a lot of people do have that assumption that it's all addiction. Um, but I like to try to get people in the way of thinking of, is homelessness created by addiction or does homelessness create addiction? And uh, I think a lot of times it's that second one. Yeah, that's a really fantastic question. That was actually one question I wanted to ask you. When that is co-occurring, which one typically comes first? Mm -hmm. But from what I'm hearing, it, it's not a clear-cut answer. No, it just depends. Not. And we don't, I think sometimes because we just don't have the luxury to spend the amount of time to kind of dive into that with mm -hmm. people. Um, but also I think if we did, like I don't, know how much knowing that would really change how we'd go about treating that person or helping them get connected to what they needed. Uh, 
Um, and this is also really closely tied to mental health services. So I was wondering what mental health resources are available to people who are unhoused. Sure. Um, that's, a, that's a hard one to answer um, because it, it's a big barrier. Mm. And it's one that if you talk to anybody that's doing this work and you ask what are the services that are needed to better serve this population, it's gonna, that's going to fall within the top five. Gotcha. Uh, and so we do have partnerships with uh, the local mental health serv service providers here as far as, far as volunteer behavioral health. Uh, there, there still is that PATH program that I used to do. They have a PATH program coordinator and we uh, do our best to get folks connected to that program to try to get uh, them in with the PATH program to get them uh, scheduled with an appointment at uh, Johnson Mental Health uh, in order to begin that engagement. We also uh, have connections at Erlanger um, with uh, the folks that work in their emergency room department and we have um, a really close re relationship with a licensed clinical social worker there uh, who's able to kind of make those connections happen for folks. They come out with us twice a month uh, on outreach as well and are able to kind of bridge that gap in some ways as well. Um, but it's definitely a gap that is very large and needs some more structure and support as far as getting these services directly to where people are. Uh, you can set an appointment for someone, but if they don't know what day it is or what time it is or how to get to the location in which their appointment is located, and even if they did know where it was, actually having transportation to get there, all of those things come into play. And then you throw on that they have, you know, persistent, severe mental illness. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just, you know, what are the odds? And so uh, they're, they're, we're wanting um, that perspective to be out there uh, more in regards to mental health services for this population. Um, that's interesting that you mentioned some of the barriers that you all face as service providers. Um, I do want to talk about some of the barriers that this population faces, but what are some of the other things that um, people working with this population, the barriers that you face? I think time is a big barrier. Um, it's one of our most precious resources. We all only have up to 40 hours a week, and there are only a handful of us. So we try to be very careful with our time. Um, supplies, blankets, sleeping bags, we're short on now. Um, just not knowing exactly what we're going to have at any given time to give out um, is sometimes difficult. Um, I don't know, Joe, what else? If somebody wanted to donate to you, how would they do that? We just got a an Amazon wish list that, um, can we post that on the? Yeah, I'm going to post it. Yeah. yeah, it'll be posted on that Rock Facebook page that you all should follow. <laughs> <laughs> That's ROC. And also, um, where I work at the Chat Foundation is a great place to donate. We take everything from, you know, clothing, shoes, blankets. Um, we take food donations and basically anything and everything that you would want to donate. You can donate to the Chat Foundation except furniture. Um, and that can be done at our location at 727 East 11th Street. You can just pull up right in the front and some friendly faces come out and help you unload. 
Okay, so housing. I know we don't have like days to discuss this, which is what we'd probably need, but if you wouldn't mind just speaking about housing, what are the issues, what are we seeing right now? Sure. Um, first, it always has to be said that it's just too expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, housing is just too expensive right now. My, my brother-in-law uh, is looking to get married soon. He, he and the um, person he's hoping to marry are um, both in college, fixing to graduate. And at Thanksgiving this week, uh, this last week, they are talking about trying to find an apartment. And so we were all trying to chip in, trying to help. And uh, you get on any listing site and it's a thousand dollars for a one bedroom mm -hmm. uh, anywhere <laughs> and so that's first and foremost there's just uh it's just to cost too much and then if you try to consider that against someone who doesn't have any income uh, it becomes really challenging but there are our programs and voucher programs uh, are available uh, to allow people uh, to get a housing voucher from the housing authority uh, that acts like a section eight housing voucher uh, that can go towards housing um, but even those struggle to kind of accommodate the uh, the housing market uh, that we're looking at right now the, the waiting list for those uh, after you get the voucher there's a waiting list most of the time mm -hmm. isn't there yes yes and uh, the yeah through these apartment complexes there are waiting lists everywhere you go uh, but with these particular homeless preference vouchers they are aimed at working with private landlords uh, but then you're looking at just discrimination um, on you know knowing what these vouchers mean mm -hmm. uh, and the assumptions that come with uh, who has these vouchers uh, yeah. uh, it's, it takes a lot of work uh, to build relationships with landlords uh, to be able to realize that people experiencing homelessness deserve housing whether they have a, a voucher or not and so uh, every time I talk about this subject I always want to give love and support to uh, what the Office of Homelessness and Supportive Housing through the city is doing because they just don't get enough of that in that mm -hmm. regard. Uh, a lot of people like to say, well, the city's just not doing enough. Uh, well, if you look at homeless service providers in our community, as far as housing people experiencing homelessness, they are lifting the biggest weight when it comes to housing individuals and families that are experiencing homelessness in our community. And so I always want to say that um, before these uh, discussions go any further yeah. uh, and they're housing people uh, left and right uh, but uh, the issue is there's just unfortunately not enough supportive services once people get into housing to allow people to be able to be supported enough mm -hmm. to maintain it uh, the city has uh, service providers as uh, their title that are to be with folks that are uh, recently housed through their program to provide those supportive services. But uh, whenever they're housing hundreds of people, and how many do they have right now? So, uh, like three or four? Three or four, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's just uh, the magnitude of the amount of work that it takes to provide the support that's needed uh, is really difficult. And then uh, a lot of times these landlords that do accept these vouchers, um, for lack of a better term, can be 
slumlords uh, mm. are truly just trying to cash in um, with these vouchers and get some uh, money uh, from the voucher, but then, uh, you know, going through with the eviction process in the way that it's not supposed to. And um, people, like we've said before, don't have enough representation or enough voice to be able to kind of fight against that in the way that they're able to um, through the legal system. And so they end up back out on the streets. And then once that happens, it becomes really difficult to get rehoused um, through the different programs that are housing people. You get housed, then you're unhoused. Once they uh, have an eviction, it's hard for them to even uh, qualify for the voucher. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's uh, at least it's five years, five years. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, a lot of times what happens is people do they qualify for the voucher. They get the voucher. They're accepted for the voucher. And there's a celebration in that moment. Um, and they're take, it's a lot of hoops to jump through to get the voucher in the first place. But really, the hardest part begins once you get the voucher. And now you got to find a place, and you only have what is it like six months mm-hmm. in order to actually find a place, and you can get a, another three-month extension, um, and then the voucher can expire on you, and you haven't had any luck at finding a place to to use the voucher. And the city has housing navigators that are doing their best uh, to kind of help these folks that do get the vouchers find places that they can use them. Um, but you got to be able to keep track of where people are. And that, I think mm-hmm. that's the other piece that we'd like to touch on is the constant displacement of people that are experiencing homelessness that um, are constantly being moved. And that makes everybody that's trying to assist this population's job 10 times harder. Mm. Uh, and so um, a lot of times people push back against um, ideas like shelters and places where people can actually be that are experiencing homelessness can actually stay and be found on a consistent basis there's a lot of pushback against that and and people use the the logic of well we don't need band-aid solutions and i'm not a medical professional at all i don't have any medical training i do work for homeless health care but what i do know is that band-aids can be helpful uh in certain situations um our nurse that comes out with us from homeless health care i've seen her apply a lot of bandages to some wounds in order to prevent infection from occurring or progressing and we need some band-aid solutions right now um especially as it's getting colder yes i can know somebody is in this certain location in this particular area one day and then i come back the next week and they're gone and they're gone at the exact moment as to when we're going to try to go take them to an apartment that they could go live in but they got removed from the place that they were staying and we have no idea where they are we have no way of contacting them they have no way of contacting us and then it could be six months later and we've Mm -hmm. finally run into that person again and all this more trauma has happened more barriers have been created all these things have happened in those six months to where we're having to deal with all these other issues and the vouchers expired or something's happened where we have to start all over again and that happens all the time Uh, and so we need some band-aid solutions uh, to be able to cover up these wounds um, that are continuing to fester and get worse um, with this issue of homelessness that we're dealing with in our community. Uh, And I I just don't know if enough people really have that perspective of Mm -hmm. um, we can, we can get people housed, but we have to know where they are the whole time in the process of trying to get them housed because it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of patience and it takes a lot of 
two steps forward, one step back. Uh, and whenever we can't take the steps to continue to know where people are, then we're taking more than one step back. We're taking multiple. And that kind of also goes back to what Joe was saying about leading a horse to water. Well, if you've done it already and all but drowned the horse, and the next time you take them and offer that same assistance, they're understandably hesitant. I understand that. Hey, we appreciate you both so much coming on the show and speaking today. We appreciate what you do, and we certainly, at the Hamilton County Coalition, we certainly appreciate your partnership. Um, tell people, if you can, real quickly, your website and maybe a phone number. Um, and then, Maddie and I, I think we're going to turn to a little bit of prevention and the naloxone. You all said you all hand that out too, right? We do. Yeah, we get a monthly dose from you guys, a uh, monthly amount of naloxone from you guys to hand out on outreach. And uh, we always love to hear whenever we ask, hey, do you guys need any uh, naloxone or Narcan? People say, no, we still have the ones that you gave us last time. We're like, mm -hmm. okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're thankful for that. It's truly saving lives. Um, we don't really have a go-to phone number um, for uh, you to contact The Rock, but we do have a Gmail uh, account. Um, it's the regional outreach cooperative at gmail.com. You can send us uh, questions um, or anything uh, on that. And uh, again, that's the regional outreach cooperative at gmail.com. And uh, Facebook page, uh, again, if you want to keep track uh, with what we're doing in the community, and we try to highlight a partner every week that we're working with, try to give that bigger idea of we're all trying to come together to do this. I don't. I know the folks listening can't see my shirt, but there there's a symbol on my shirt. It's a circle with all these uh, hands interlocked. Um, that's what we're all about, is trying to lock hands with these other agencies and even the people themselves, um, because whenever we do that, uh, we're able to provide stronger connections and stronger solutions. So, Thank you for that. So, Maddie, I guess we're going to turn a little bit to uh, the prevention side, um, overdose prevention specifically. Deborah Clark and Kendall Morgan, they are what we call ropes. They're uh, regional overdose prevention specialists at the Hamilton County Coalition. Um, I spoke with them this morning to get some numbers about overdoses in Chattanooga and the Hamilton County area. In January of this year, there were 59 non-fatal overdoses and 17 fatal overdoses. Um, my friends, this was the first of the month in January. It was the first month of the year. It was just after the holidays. Um, and year to date, um, and we're just at November, so keep that in mind. Uh, overdose fatalities right now are 165 for Hamilton County and Chattanooga. Those numbers are staggering, and it is, um, it's sad. And it is preventable. Yeah, our overdose prevention specialists, they want to help reduce those numbers. And you can receive um, online training or training in person the Hamilton County Coalition through uh, Deborah Clark and Kendall Morgan. If you uh, go on our website, you can register for uh, live online classes on Monday and Wednesday, I think at 2 and 6. Uh, just check out our website at hccoalition.org. What you got, Maddie? 
Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the holidays and driving under the influence. This applies to not only alcohol, but other substances as well. Um, about 31% of all traffic crash fatalities in the U.S. involve drunk drivers. And the holidays are some of the most dangerous times for drivers due to increased drunk driving incidences. Um, during the New Year's and Christmas periods in 2020, there were 209 drunk driving related fatalities. And that's right around the holidays holidays um it's so tragic that this happens to people's families and it's every year um and this is another preventable tragedy as well um in 2020 there were 11,654 people killed nationwide in drunk driving crashes that's from the u.s department of transportation and in 2021 that number increased by 14 percent if you are drinking during the holidays or during celebrations, make sure to arrange to have a designated driver. That can be a friend, a family member, um, someone else, another guest who's not drinking. Or you can call an Uber, Lyft, or taxi. Or you can stay where you are if you are in a loved one's home and it's safe to do so. So we just really want to encourage safe driving practices uh, during the holidays. Yeah, and, and uh, call the Helter County Coalition or go online to register for the uh, online training or training in person for the Naloxone, better known probably to some of you as Narcan. It does save lives, and it's not enabling a person with substance use disorder. Um, I want to go ahead and announce a couple of things that are coming up for um, one of our partners, Office House. They have the Christmas Village coming up. Uh, like I said, they were do they're going to do the lighting of a 20-foot Christmas tree. Uh, they're going to have a kid zone with a train ride to the North Pole. They're raising, uh, they're collecting toys for the Forgotten Child Fund. Uh, you can drop those off even at Celebrate Recovery there at Otto's House on Wednesday night. If you have habits and hang-ups and you want to work through that, give Celebrate Recovery a try at Otto's House. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Casey. We appreciate you coming out. This has been the Coalition Rendition. I'm Cindy. And I'm Maddie. And we are signing out. Y'all have a great week.